We see this in diagrams here, the nasal pharynx, oral pharynx. Here's the nasal, here's the oral, and laryngopharynx. We see the food called bolus. That's how we call it when it's mixed with saliva and all uh, like a paste. And this bolus goes against the hard palate and soft palate. Voluntary stage. Second stage, pharyngeal, the bolus is going through the soft palate and reaching the oropharynx, and that is a stimulation for a reflex that will be the beginning of the third, second and third phase, contraction of pharyngeal muscles. And the contraction of pharyngeal muscles will make the epiglottis go down and closing the glottis, which is the airway, the space of the larynx. And in that way, we don't choke. The food will not get into the airways. And now the food is getting into the esophagus. This part right here is the esophagus, the beginning of the esophagus. Because the laryngopharynx will finish right here. And from there on is the esophagus. So that force, that contraction of the pharyngeal muscles will make the esophagus open. Here where these arrows are, you see that it's collapsed because that's the beginning of the esophagus. There is a sphincter there called upper esophageal sphincter, which is contracted all the time, but it relaxes so the food can go through it. And, well, this is the sequence of all these. First is contracted, and the second stage, that sphincter is relaxed and then contracted again after the food enters into the esophagus. So, three stages, voluntary, pharyngeal, and esophageal phase of the swallow. And when the esophagus receives the bolus of food, gets dilated. And when the digestive tube get di gets dilated as a reaction, it will contract. And this is the beginning of this sequence of coordinated contractions, wave of contractions called peristalsis. And this wave of contractions will carry, move the food forward to the stomach, to the stomach. So even if you are upside down, standing on your hands, and you swallow some piece of food, that food will get to the stomach because of the peristalsis of contractions. And the upper sphincter, the upper esophageal sphincter will contract. So if you go upside down, that sphincter will be contracted. It will not allow the food to go back to your mouth. Now it depends on how much food you swallow because by the effect of gravity, it may, may relax and the food will come back to your mouth. But the peristalsis will happen. There will be peristalsis starting from the esophagus and bringing food uh, down to the stomach. Questions? Yes. So when people start like choking on food, is it stuck in the pharynx Choking. Choking is when the food gets into the glottis, the airway. Yeah. That's why one of the first things we do or ask when someone's choking and we want to help is you ask, are you choking? <laughs> and it sounds silly, right? 
But if the person says, of course I am choking, <laughs> that person is not choking. It may happen. If someone doesn't know and starts faking, and someone comes over and says, are you choking? Yes, I'm choking. <laughs> You're not choking. When you choke, really choke, you cannot speak. I mean, the food or whatever object is in your airway and your larynx, where the voice, the voice box, where, where the vocal cords are, you cannot, you cannot make any sound at all. If someone is actually choking, you ask and the person will be like, absolute silence. Or some sounds like, that's it. That's why we ask, are you choking? Sounds silly, but it, it works sometimes. You're choking? Yes, I'm choking. Any other question? And the food keeps coming down. Down the esophagus, you can see the muscle contracting. And that's how the food goes through the esophagus, like in bolus. That's why it's called bolus, because it goes in small amounts trapped in between wave of contractions. And when this bolus reaches the inferior part of the esophagus, where we find another sphincter called lower esophageal sphincter, which is always closed also, here is always closed. But when the food arrives, that sphincter relaxes and the food enters into the stomach. And what happens with the peristalsis? Will it disappear? Will it fade? No, it keeps going because it's the same muscle, same layers of muscle, it's just a tube, it's just a different part of the tube, the stomach. And the stomach will keep contracting also. But the stomach will have a different patterns of contractions, which will help for digestion also. So now the food is in the stomach. That's the esophageal stage of the swallowing. When the food comes down the esophagus and enters to the stomach after going through the lower esophageal sphincter. So the esophagus is a muscular tube. A muscular tube that starts in the laryngopharynx and ends at the junction with the stomach. The walls, smooth muscle, but there is something. Closer to the, to the pharynx, there is some skeletal muscle. Because the pharynx is a skeletal muscle. It's voluntary. And the transition, laryngopharynx, to esophagus, at the beginning of the esophagus, there may be some uh, fibers of skeletal muscle. But then it transitions into smooth muscle. It's all just smooth muscle, almost the, uh, the whole length of the esophagus. And it travels in the thoracic cavity, posterior mediastinum, and then pierces the diaphragm. It makes a hole in the diaphragm, and this hole is called esophageal hiatus. That's the name of that opening that allows the esophagus to enter into the abdominal cavity. Histology. We have seen this in the lab, all the layers, and we know that the epithelium of the esophagus is stratified squamous epithelium, non-keratinized. Non-keratinized. 
And as we say, the superior third is skeletal muscle. There's some skeletal muscle there in the transition from pharynx to esophagus. And then, progressively, it turns completely into smooth muscle. And there is something that happens sometimes in the lower esophageal sphincter. We call it incompetence. These fibers of smooth muscles, sometimes they are not contracting very effectively or efficiently, and they are kind of relaxed. And that results in a disease called GERD that stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease or just reflex, sometimes we say just reflex. And the symptom of this is known as heartburn. Why heartburn? Because it burns here. And here's where the esophagus is. The heart is here. The esophagus is behind the heart. Well, if we feel it here, it feels like the heart's burning. It's the esophagus which is being irritated. Why? Because when the food gets into the stomach, dilates the lower esophageal sphincter. When the food is in the stomach, this sphincter contracts again and it closes. So no more food will arrive until the next wave of contraction, the next piece of food that you swallow. But then after you finish your meal and the last piece of food gets in the stomach, the lower esophageal sphincter is supposed to remain closed. But if it's weak, that will relax, and the stomach has very powerful contractions. When the food is there, and if you have a very good meal, then the stomach is plenty of food and full, and it starts contracting, and if the sphincter is weak, then the food will return to the esophagus. And what's the pH of the stomach? Two, very acidic. But the esophagus will get irritated by that acid. And as a sign or symptom called heartburn. Now this may get worse over the time and produce fibrosis, scar, and this sphincter gets very weak and remains all the time uh, very relaxed and this person has reflex all the time. And there are some changes in the cells, there may be some changes in the cells that lead to what we call uh, chronic esophagitis. Now, how this lower esophageal sphincter gets so weak and relaxed? Well, there are different circumstances. One of them happens during pregnancy. There's a hormone called progesterone that's produced during pregnancy. And that progesterone relaxes the smooth muscle and relaxes the sphincter also a little bit. And it's common during pregnancy at some point, uh, women have this reflux problem. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, some other problem related with this is the situation that happens when we don't eat our meals at regular times, and especially too late in the evening. Let's say you get your dinner at 11 p.m. and then 11.30, you're so sleepy, you go to bed. What's gonna happen? Well, the position horizontal position and the food in your stomach, there will be a lot of pressure against this lower sphincter. And it's not uncommon that 
the next morning you wake up with heartburn and with discomfort here because and you said I, I ate it was too late to eat last evening yeah it was too late because the acid is going back to the esophagus so that's one of the things another thing is overweight when you do the same and your stomach still has food and you go to bed laying down horizontal and all the weight of your abdominal cavity organs greater momentum all the weight will just push the stomach and the stomach is working so there's more pressure against this lower esophageal sphincter and the food acidic uh, content may return to the esophagus and produce irritation so the food is in the stomach now the stomach is this organ with a j shape and it is located right after the esophagus and will connect to the small intestine. If we open the stomach, we will see one thing. There are many wrinkles and folds of the mucosa. We call them rugged, large folds. But that's because this stomach can be very dilated. It gets distended depending on the amount of stomach contents. Stomach sometimes can even reach the pelvis. You eat a lot. And different people have different sizes of the stomach. The stomach can get distended, chronically distended. There are people that have a very large stomach. And if you eat a lot, the stomach will occupy most of the abdominal cavity. That's actually very uh, big and reach the pelvic cavity. But, yes? That can happen ahead of time, but I'm um, not so sure that will work so quick, but it will work long term. Yeah, for sure it will work. Yeah. Um, so, like, when people get liposuction, um, you know, like, they lose all weight and stuff, but they say that their stomach doesn't um, get any smaller. Is that, like, you can't reduce the size of your stomach once you've been overweight for, like, years? So you mean someone is overweight and um, uh -huh, but the stomach remains large. Yes. If if the stomach can reduce the size afterwards, in those cases when this adaptation thing happens, the stomach gets dilated sometimes and chronically adapted for that, and it's hard. Same as the skin. The skin, when you remove the fat, gets all, yeah, like a flap. Yeah. Does it gastric bypass surgery kind of reduce your stomach size or no? Yes. Yes, gastric bypass, there are many different types of surgery for um, weight control, especially the people that uh, where other methods and things are not working, and this is one of the options. And what they do is, surgery that would bypass the, the, the stomach or reduce the size of the stomach using an elastic band around and reduce the volume of the stomach. And that's just physical. People eat, eat, but there's a point that they feel full and cannot eat anymore. Uh, it may be, it's difficult because the person feels full but is still hungry. So there's an anxiety component which is very strong. And, uh, it needs a uh, time of adjustment afterwards. 
Um, but yeah, that, all these things can be done with the stomach. And everyone has a different size of the stomach by genetics. That's another fact. But then, it depends on how much you usually eat, your stomach may be distended uh, by adaptation. So what happens in the stomach is the food gets mixed and it's a reservoir that allows the enzymes to digest. Two things happen here. Mechanical digestion by the strong contraction of the stomach, mixture, and um, chemical digestion because there are enzymes that start working on the, uh, on the food. For mechanical digestion, we see something. There's an additional layer of muscle in the stomach, which is oblique. The inner layer, which is oblique. Remember, there are, along the tube, there are two layers, the inner circular and the longitudinal, outer the longitudinal. Well, there's an additional, there's a third layer in the stomach, just in the stomach, which is inner and it's oblique. So that allows contraction in many different directions and it helps to mix and it helps to uh, with the uh, chemical digestion also. The anatomy of the stomach is described as having four regions, the cardia, fundus, body, and pylorus. In a diagram we see all these parts. The cardia is the junction, the area of connection with the esophagus. The fundus is this curved part, the very top of it, with a dome shape. That is called the fundus. Then the rest is the body. So the body will include all this, all this part that I'm doing here. All that will be the body of the stomach. Then the antrum or pyloric antrum, which is like a previous passageway to the exit. And the exit is called the pyloric canal. The pyloric canal. And the end of the stomach is at the pylorus, that is a pylorus, that's the limit, the border. Connection of the stomach with small intestine. And it happens to be a sphincter here. There's another sphincter, pyloric sphincter. If you touch this part, you can feel there's a very thick ring of smooth muscle here. And it's another sphincter that is very contracted all the time because the food has to spend some time in the stomach for digestion, mechanical digestion and chemical digestion. How many hours the food gets, uh, uh, stays in your stomach after a regular meal? Four? Average? Four to five. Four to five, yeah? Is the pyloris that minor, is it from Yeah, the pylorus, the pylorus is just that limit, the connection, okay? Right at that pylorus, in the wall, there's a sphincter, which is a ring of a smooth muscle. That is a pyloric sphincter. The pyloric canal is just this 
part right before the pylorus. And the antrum is this triangular area. That is the antrum. It's like a small area before the pyloric canal. There are two more descriptions or terms that we use to describe the stomach, which are the greater curvature and the lesser curvature, which are those, just the borders. Sometimes when there are lesions, problems, uh, perforations, we describe them using these terms. It's closer to the greater curvature, closer to the lesser curvature. Because if we say just body, the body is very big area. And we can use this closer to the greater curvature, next to the lesser curvature. And also you can see the layers of muscle, three layers of muscle, the longitudinal, circular, and oblique. The oblique is innermost in the stomach. And that's how a real stomach looks. If you see the pylorus, this is what I was saying, this ring. All this is that ring of smooth muscle, the sphincter, cut in a longitudinal way. Compare that thickness with the rest of the thickness of the wall. And you can see there's a very thick. The cardia will be here, the fundus, the body, the antrum will be here, pyloric canal, the pyloric canal, the antrum, and the pylorus, the end. And you can see all the foldings, rugged of the mucosa um, that practically disappear when the stomach is very dilated or distended with food. Yes? The sphincter, the sphincter. Yeah, the stenosis will happen right here. Pyloric stenosis. Now, it may happen also at the pyloric canal. It depends on what type of problem we're talking about. Maybe fibrosis, maybe congenital, maybe compression of the organs around. Uh, but it's at the sphincter or in the pyloric canal. Stenosis is a narrowing of the duct that happens sometimes. And this is a summary of the functions of the stomach. Here, what happens is the food gets mixed with saliva, gastric juice, and form this substance, which is a food partially digested. We call it chyme or chyme. Reservoir of food, because the chyme will get there very processed before it goes to the small intestine. And if we keep eating, keep eating, keep eating, the food will stay in the stomach until it's completely processed and digested. That takes about four to five hours. It may take up to eight hours, depending on the type of nature of the food that you eat. Gastric juice is produced by the cells of the stomach, containing hydrochloric acid, Pepsin, which is the enzyme that digests proteins, hydrochloric acid, and some other substances like intrinsic factor, which help to the absorption of vitamin B12. There is a lipase in the stomach also, gastric lipase for digestion of lipids. And gastrin. Gastrin is a hormone. 
So there are cells in the stomach that produce hormones, gastrin. What is gastrin going to do? It's going to regulate this secretion of gastric juice. We'll see that in the next slides. Histology. What are the cells that we find in the stomach? The epithelium is simple columnar. Simple columnar. And there's a lot of mucus cells. Mucus cells, the production of mucus will help and protect because the stomach is subject to first mechanical work plus chemi chemicals produced it may destroy the surface of the cells that's why the mucus protects from this and there are other cells that will produce the juice and they are located in what we call gastric glands, but they are just cells of the epithelium which gets in deep uh, pits or gaps and specialize in the production of the, you know, certain products. And all these gastric glands, when they secrete their product, they get into pits and then get out to the surface of the mucus cells. That's what we see in the lab. We see the uh, mucosa, a very thick layer with many cells of different colors, some red, some blue. Uh, those are different cells, different types of cells that produce different uh, secretions, and that's what we call the gastric glands. So a gastric gland is considered all this group of cells at the bottom of these rows of epithelial cells. And the gastric pit, just these openings here, and when these cells produce their juice, all the juice come out to the gastric pits, out to the surface of the stomach where the food is. So that's why the mucosa includes all this, mucosa, all these cells, epithelium plus gastric glands, and that's what we see very thick in the slides under the microscope. Then we have the submucosa, a lot of blood vessels. We see the myenteric, I mean the submucosal plexus, nerves here, that will control the secretion of these cells. And then the three layers of smooth muscle, the oblique, circular, and longitudinal. Questions, comments? 10 minute break. And here we can see the different types of cells. The mucus cells or neck cells, they are close to the exit of the gastric pits. The parietal cells, hydrochloric acid and intrinsic factor. The chief cells produce the enzymes and the G cells that produce the gastrin. These cells, the gastrin cells or G cells, they are very deep in the gastric gland. And they produce the gastrin and release it to the blood. They produce this hormone. It's uh, considered an endocrine cell. <coughs> and that's the composition of the gastric juice. Do you have a question? So when you take for, uh, for, that, is it the for? Like when you take 
Uh-huh. Yeah, when you have heartburn, uh, increased acid in the stomach or irritating the esophagus, medications are prescribed. And these medications, what they do is reduce the secretion of hydrochloric acid, affecting the parietal cells mainly. But what happens is, and we'll see that on a different slide, G cells produce gastrin, and this gastrin will stimulate uh, the production of hydrochloric acid. So some medications are directed against the parietal cells, some other medications directed against the other cells. It depends, that's why they have different types of medications for this. And the gastric juice is composed by all these products. Hydrochloric acid, pepsinogen, lipase, and mucus. Intrinsic factor. pH 2, pH 3 approximately, that's what we find in the stomach. And first, that pH kills many bacteria. The stomach is a place where many bacteria will die. If you eat some food contaminated with bacteria and you don't get sick, it's because most bacteria will die in the stomach. If you still get sick, that means that you ate lots of bacteria and some of them survived and made its way to the small intestine. The acidic pH will denature the proteins in the food, and this is the most important part of the hydrochloric acid. It will convert pepsinogen into pepsin. What is pepsinogen? Pepsinogen is an inactive form of the enzyme. The hydrochloric acid activates the pepsinogen into pepsin. Pepsin is the active enzyme, the one that digests proteins. And the reason why it has to be activated is that if the cells secrete pepsin, it will digest, digest themselves. They will have to secrete pepsinogen, which is inactive, and when, they, when the pepsinogen is in, in the surface of the cells, in the lumen of the stomach, mixing with hydrochloric acid, it will get activated the food is there and it starts working on the food, not on the cells of the wall. Lipase, fats, triglycerides, and intrinsic factor, which is important for the absorption of vitamin B12. Vitamin B12 is a vitamin which is necessary for the production of red blood cells. There are some types of anemia that are caused by deficiency of this vitamin B12. Some people may have this anemia because they are not eating enough vitamin B12. Or some people may have this problem of anemia because they are not producing intrinsic factor. And the intrinsic factor is necessary for absorption of B12. Who can suffer of this? Well, there are some people that have um, diseases in the stomach, like cancer, for instance, and they have to remove the stomach, or a good portion of the stomach, gastrectomy. And this intrinsic factor is produced by the cells in the stomach. They don't have stomach, so they don't have intrinsic factor. Long term, they may have anemia because of deficiency of vitamin B12. There's no intrinsic factor to absorb the vitamin B12. Or people may have anemia because of deficiency of this vitamin in the diet, which is rare. It's not common. 
This is showing the mechanisms of production, of regulation of production of hydrochloric acid in the stomach. Yes. Pepsinogen is the inactive form of the pepsin. Pepsinogen gets activated into pepsin by hydrochloric acid. And is pepsin a type of enzyme that um, like digests or? Pepsin is the enzyme that digests proteins. So here we see the parietal cell. This is a parietal cell. And what they're showing us here is how the hydrochloric acid is produced. This parietal cell has receptors for acetylcholine, it has receptors for gastrin, and it has receptors for histamine. This acetylcholine receptor connects to sympathetic nervous system or parasympathetic, cranial nerve number 10, the vagus. Gastrin, receptors for gastrin. Who produces gastrin? The G cells. So these G cells stimulate the parietal cells to produce hydrochloric acid. Histamine, who produces histamine? The interendocrine cells, or ECLs. And the histamine will also stimulate the parietal cell to produce hydrochloric acid. So there are many mechanisms by which the parietal cell produces the hydrochloric acid that increases the acidity of the contents of the stomach. So medications like Cimetidine, Tagamet, Famotidine, they work against the receptors of histamine. So it will prevent that the parietal cell is producing too much acid. And in this side of the diagram, we see something that we call alkaline tide. Alkaline tide is excessive amounts of bicarbonate ions enter into the blood. And if there's a lot of bicarbonate in the blood, that leads to alkalosis. And alkalosis will reach this change of the pH, pH goes up, will affect the metabolism of neurons. And this is what we have after we eat, 15, 20 minutes after, you eat a good meal, you feel like having a nap. That's called alkaline tide. The exaggerated situation is called food coma. Well, it's actually not food coma. It's, it's a very strong alkaline tide. You get so sleepy after you eat a lot. That's because of the increase of bicarbonates going to the blood. Why? Because if you go to the inside of the parietal cell, what you will see is the bicarbonate is coming from inside. Why? Because this bicarbonate is part of the carbonic acid. And the chloride is coming in the cell because it has to be secreted as part of the hydrochloric acid. And there has to be an exchange. A chloride enters into the cell, which is negative charge, but it has to be replaced by a bicarbonate which is negative, and this bicarbonate has to leave the cell. Lots of these bicarbonates enter to the blood and produce this increase of the pH and alkaline, producing the alkaline type.
Erosion of the stomach lining, that's what we know as gastritis, which may be erosive gastritis, even hemorrhagic gastritis, or gastric ulcer. Just an open wound in the mucosa of the stomach. How this happens? Well, the balance is out there. Hydrochloric acid, too much hydrochloric acid, uh, too much pepsin, less secretion of mucus uh, from the mucus cells, they may lead to erosion or the presence of substances like alcohol or medications like aspirin. It can irritate the stomach and produce all this. So this is what happens in the stomach. Look at the pattern of contraction. The still peristalsis going through all the way. But then the pylorus is closed. And if it's closed, all the food will go back and start going in circles. Go back and mixing and mixing and mixing until it's processed completely. At least all the enzymes have worked and the pylorus will detect that and start relaxing, letting pieces or uh, amounts of food go into the small intestine. This is called the chyme because it's like a liquid soup containing all the food that you ate. It's a mixture containing acid and uh, the proteins and the uh, lipids have been digested partially. So after two or four hours and we say that the stomach will empty its contents into the duodenum. It depends on the nature of the food. If there's a high content of proteins, it'll stay longer. And even slower if the meal contains large amounts of fat. Water with carbohydrates takes less time. But whenever there is proteins and fats, it will take much longer. Because it needs, time is needed for uh, action of the enzymes. Absorption happens here. There's no absorption in the stomach. It's just digestion. Chemical digestion, mechanical digestion. There is absorption of, maybe absorption of water, some medications, alcohol. The alcohol is absorbed since, since it's inside the mouth. It goes through the cells of the oral mucosa, pharynx, the esophagus, the stomach, all, every, everywhere in the digestive tube. And then when the food is ready, it gets into the duodenum. And we have the intestinal phase of digestion at this point. In the duodenum, we see the pyloric sphincter here. The next portion is small intestine. Duodenum is the first portion of the small intestine. And in the duodenum, what's going to happen is action of pancreatic juice, bile, and intestinal juice the digestion will be completed here in the duodenum. And what happens after is absorption. Small intestine is basically absorption. Pancreas. Pancreas produces enzymes. Remember the pancreas, we studied the pancreas in the endocrine system because it has, it has some cells that produce hormones, insulin, glucagon, 
But the other cells called acinal cells, they produce enzymes, digestive enzymes. Digestion in the duodenum relies on the enzymes that are produced by the pancreas. Pancreas is retroperitoneal. It is connected to the duodenum by the hepatopancreatic ampulla and accessory ducts. That is how the pancreas drains its contents, I mean its secretions, into the duodenum. Enzymes, sodium bicarbonate, because the pH of the chyme, the food that is coming from the stomach, is acidic. It has to be neutralized. So the pancreatic juice contains a lot of bicarbonate, it's alkaline, so it will neutralize the acid coming from the stomach. Here we have the location of the pancreas is behind the stomach. We see the projection of the stomach on the pancreas. And the pancreas is in contact here with the duodenum. Because here is where the pancreas will release its contents. Here we see better all these connections. Pancreas is close to the duodenum, which is the first portion of the small intestine, and it has three portions. The pancreas has three parts. The head, which is all this, the body, and the tail. The head of the pancreas is in contact with the duodenum. And you see the pancreatic duct running in the middle of the organ, and it will drain towards the duodenum through the ampulla or vater or hepatopancreatic ampulla. That is the connection to this uh, duodenum. Sometimes there is an accessory duct. So the pancreatic duct sends a branch that will drain also to the duodenum, and that's called accessory duct. Here we see a magnification of the drainage point of the duodenum. Pancreatic duct in purple. But here's what happens. The common bile duct, which comes from the gallbladder, will connect and join the pancreatic duct. And they together will drain to the duodenal papilla. That is that opening in the duodenum. Right before the opening, there is a dilated portion. That is what we call the ampulla, the ampulla. And there's a sphincter here that controls the release of the juices, which is called a sphincter of Odin. Because that's closed all the time. It opens up, only opens when food gets into the duodenum. The rest of the time is closed. That's an illustration of the pancreas with the two types of products, endocrine and exocrine. We have studied the islets of Langerhans or pancreatic islets, which is endocrine portion. And the acinar cells produce the digestive enzymes which drain through the pancreatic duct into the duodenum. Yep. Yeah. 
Yes, the sphincter controls the secretion of both. It is always closed. It only opens when the food gets into the water. Yes. The ampulla is that dilated part right before the opening. If you see here, let me mark it again here. The ampulla is this dilated part right here. It's just right before the opening, right before the opening. And then the juices come out to the water. That's what the ampulla is. It's just a dilated part of that uh, end part. What's the function? The function is to mix both contents of bile, which comes from the gallbladder, and pancreatic juice. And as soon as the food gets there, the sphincter opens, relaxes, and whatever is in the ampulla will be secreted right away. Because amounts of these juices are necessary for digestion of the food. And then later we'll continue with more secretion coming down and more. But at that point, there is a dilation that contains uh, uh, the mixture of bile with pancreatic juice. Here we see in a dissection how the organ works or how they are located. All this is the duodenum, which comes in this way, and the pancreas. Head of the pancreas is in contact with the duodenum, and it goes all the way to the tail, which gets very close to the spleen, it's almost touching the spleen. The common bile duct is seen as green, coming down and joining to the pancreatic duct, getting into the duodenum. This is retroperitoneal, so it's very posterior. To see this, we have to remove the stomach, cut a piece of the liver, we get very, very posterior to see all this. That's one of the reasons why the surgeries of the pancreas are really complex, and if someone has a pancreatic tumor, many times the surgery are very difficult, and the tumor has invaded already the retroperitoneal space, other organs, and very difficult access and pancreatic tumors are usually diagnosed um, late when they are advanced. So the acinar cells, most of the pancreatic tissue, are the ones that secrete these digestive enzymes. The islets, they count for just 1% of the cells. That's just what is necessary for insulin and glucagon. But the rest of the organ is for production of digestive enzymes. Pancreatic juice, look how much of the pancreatic juice is produced every day. And especially because it has to control the pH, work as a buffer, lots of bicarbonate. So they mix with the acidic contents that is coming from the stomach. The enzymes that are produced by the, pancreatic, uh, by the pancreas are the pancreatic amylase. There is a salivary amylase. So the carbohydrates that we eat, they start being digested in the mouth with the salivary amylase. But then later, it continues its digestion in the duodenum when the pancreatic amylase uh, is secreted. Carbohydrates, amylase. Proteins, 
trypsin, chymotrypsin, carboxypeptidase, and elastase. All these are going to break polypeptides into dipeptides and single amino acids. And the lipase, pancreatic lipase, which digests fats, triglycerides. So the pancreatic juice contains enzymes for the three nutrients, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. That's how we see the digestion of the proteins by the pancreatic enzymes. But there's another thing here to uh, emphasize. The enzymes of the pancreas are produced as inactive forms. They have to be activated when secreted into the duodenum. Who activates those enzymes? There's no hydrochloric acid here to activate. The activation will be made by this substance called enteropeptidase, which is produced by the cells of the duodenum. So the trypsinogen, for instance, it is produced by the pancreatic cells and is secreted to the duodenum. Cells of the duodenum produce enteropeptidase, and this enteropeptidase will activate the trypsinogen into trypsin. The yellow enzymes are the active forms. The trypsin is going to activate the other enzymes, so it's like a chain reaction. The trypsin will activate proallostase, will activate procarboxypeptidase, and the lipase, and the chymotrypsinogen. All of them. And that's how all these enzymes are activated and ready to work on the food that is getting into the duodenum. There is a problem called pancreatitis. Pancreatitis, what happens is that the cells produce the enzymes, but these enzymes cannot be secreted into the duodenum, and they get activated before reaching the duodenum. And active forms are found in the pancreatic duct. And what happens is that the enzymes are activated before they are released and they start digesting the cells of the pancreas. In pancreatitis, what we see sometimes is like the pancreas is completely digested, it's like a soup, like a gelatin, because of this problem, and that is really serious, depends on the severity of the pancreatitis. But usually pancreatitis is a very serious disease when it happens because of that. The enzymes digest the organ. It takes longer, longer, uh, bigger to digest it and more severe than the problem. Next, liver. Two lobes, right and left, divided by the falciform ligament. The falciform ligament that connects to the anterior abdominal wall. The liver is organized in lobules. If we go to the microscopy, we'll see these hexagonal shapes, hexagons, and those are what we call the lobules. In the lobule, in the central part, we see a blood vessel, which is a vein, and it's called central vein. And in the corners of this hexagon, we see the portal triad, composed by bile duct, 
a branch of the hepatic artery and a branch of the portal vein. Here we see three lobules together and uh, with a central vein, with a central vein. How this is organized? It is organized in a way that the circulation, the blood arrives to the lobules through the vessels of the portal triad. And then the blood will be circulating from around the hexagon into the central part of the hexagon. And the blood will get into the central vein. Central veins from all lobules will get together and they will get out of the liver. So if you think about the liver, it's, the liver is about, like, it's like a filter. Blood arrives to the liver through the portal vein, which brings blood from the intestines. And then after going through the liver, the blood will reach the inferior vena cava. We have seen this in the lab, the central vein. The hepatocytes or liver cells are organized in cords of cells like radiating into the central vein. And the portal triad in the corner of these lobules. What else we see here? Well, the falciform ligament is the membrane of peritoneum that separates the lobules. But in the border of the falciform ligament, we see another ligament called round ligament. That round ligament is a remain of the umbilical vein from fetal circulation. Then, after birth and through all these years, the vein will turn into the fibrous cord called round ligament. And at the right lobe, we see a little bit of the gallbladder. The gallbladder is under the right lobe of the liver. And on top of the liver, we can see the inferior vena cava. The inferior vena cava is running behind the liver. That's why we see a piece of vena cava there after we remove the liver from the body. Hepatocytes, we call the hepatocytes, the liver cells. The liver has many functions. Some of them, related with digestion, are listed here. All the nutrients that we eat and process in the stomach, small intestine, absorbed through the walls of the small intestine, they will reach the liver. And in the liver, all these amino acids, monosaccharides, fats, they will be processed. Sometimes new carbohydrates are produced, new proteins are produced, or stored. All that happens in the hepatocytes or liver cells. Besides that, these cells, they have many enzymes and lysosomes that will help to modify, detoxify, and excrete many things that usually we eat or take, like medications. The liver cells will clean up our blood from all these uh, toxic uh, substances sometimes. Alcohol is metabolized by the liver. That's one of the things that the liver cells have enzymes to break down the molecules of alcohol. 
and many medications are processed by the liver cells and then excreted and then they are excreted. That's why the liver may be damaged by alcohol, by medications, drugs of different types and even sometimes by some food that we may eat. And the liver has also functions that are not related with the digestive system. Like, there is phagocytosis in the liver. Among the liver cells in between, there are macrophages that live there all the time. And they clean up all things that come from the intestines um, through the liver. Production of plasma proteins, albumin, fibrinogen, prothrombin, which is a coagulation protein, a clotting factor. People that have liver disease, sometimes they have problems of coagulation because their cells are not producing enough amount of the clotting factor. People with uh, cirrhosis, for instance, after uh, chronic alcoholism and the cirrhosis, damage of the liver, they happen to have a lot of bruises, easy bruising of the skin because of coagulation problems. They are not producing enough amount of clotting factors. And the vitamin D is processed by the liver in order to be active also. Circulation through the liver. And this is what I was speaking about. The intestine absorbs all the nutrients and all these nutrients go to the hepatic portal vein. Hepatic portal vein gets into the liver. The aorta, oxygenated blood, sends a branch in the hepatic artery. Oxygenated blood to the liver. To the liver and it circulates in between the cells, drains into the central vein, and all the central vein get together, get together into the hepatic vein that drains into the inferior vena cava. Or another way to see it is here to the right. We see the portal vein. Portal vein, portal vein is originated from the junction of the splenic vein and superior mesenteric vein, which is this superior mesenteric vein. Superior mesenteric vein with splenic vein get together and form the portal vein. And the portal vein enters to the liver. Out of the liver, hepatic vein will bring the blood to the inferior vena cava and continue back to the heart. That's how the circulation through the liver goes. All those spaces in between the liver cells, the hepatocytes, are called sinusoids. And you see in this diagram how the blood is flowing from the hepatic portal vein, the triad, the portal triad, and the blood is going through the sinusoids and draining to the central vein on the way to the hepatic vein. Some other things we see in this diagram is the presence of reticuloendothelial cell or Kuefer cell. That's a macrophage. That's responsible for phagocytosis in the liver. And in green, what we see in green, bile duct and the arrow is going in a different direction. It's in opposite direction to the blood. And here we go with the bile. The bile is produced by the liver cells. It's shown in green. In all those 
cells producing bile are sending this bile towards the bile duct and all these bile ducts will drain to the common bile duct and down to the to water. Same thing in a diagram. Oxygenated blood from the hepatic artery plus blood reaching nutrients from the hepatic portal vein. They reach the liver, the liver sinusoids. And from there, central vein, hepatic vein, inferior vena cava, right atrium of the heart. So the liver is on the way. It works like a filter and at the same time process nutrients detoxify blood and secretes all the substance. Those macrophages, they have a special name. They are Kufer cells. In the skin, we call them Langerhans cells, but they are also macrophages. These macrophages are called Kufer cells. And they take up everything that gets into the sinuses, sinusoids, sometimes red blood cells. Red blood cells are supposed to be recycled by the spleen. But if the spleen has a problem, or some people don't have spleen, they had it removed for many reasons. Or now, who recycles red blood cells? The liver will take over. Here are the sinusoids. And secretion of bile. Hepatocytes secrete bile. We're going to see what the bile is for. It's for digestion of fats. Bile is a substance which is alkaline and it contains water, of course, bile salts, cholesterol, and pigments. Bile is green. That's because of these pigments. When the liver cells detoxify the blood, like metabolize alcohol, metabolize drugs like Tylenol, well, the products of the metabolism are secreted in the bile, digestive system and then eliminated. Besides, the bile has a digestive function because it's used for emulsification, this process by which the big drops of fat, they get split and broken down in many small droplets of fat. And that helps for digestion and absorption of lipids. If there's no bile salts, like people that have some problem not producing bile, the lipids would not be absorbed and they will be present in the feces. Sometimes people have gallstones and those gallstones are obstructing the bile duct and the bile is not being released to the intestine. One of the symptoms or signs that they have is they can't complain and describing how are the stools? And they say, I see, I see drops of fat in the stools. Like in the water in the toilet, I see like fat. So what is that? Those are fat that is not being digested because the bile is not being secreted. And the pigment, the green pigment in the bile is called bilirubin. And it comes from the metabolism of all red blood cells. Red blood cells that contain hemoglobin. The hemoglobin is broken down and metabolized into bilirubin, that pigment that looks green. Questions? 
Okay, let's stop it here.